Okay, so today we are going to be uh, speaking about national identity, uh, and this is headed ethnic or civic. Um, and what do we mean by that? And I think this is quite an important, an important topic. I mean, even now, if we look at uh, British politics today, if we look at a formation like UKIP, for example, uh, a lot of this is revolving around a question of what is it that constitutes a nation? How important is ethnicity to uh, the definition of a nation? Perhaps UKIP might have a more ethnic definition of the nation. Gordon Brown uh, might have more of a definition based around British values or institutions like the NHS, which is more of what we might call a civic form of national identity. One is based more on ethnicity and culture. That is ethnic definitions of the nation, the other more on institutions and politics, which is the civic definition. So just to say that that's relevant then for a lot of what's going on in Europe around the issue of immigration and national identity, minorities, inclusion, and integration, and so on. So this has quite a contemporary re relevance, which I also want to try and work into this talk. Uh, but just to begin as a starting point, we talked in this course about the origin of uh, states and ethnic groups. And we've talked about nations and how nations embody, they're in, an, in some sense, they're an uneasy mix of uh, elements from the state. That is a focus on territoriality, um, mass society and politics. But then on the other hand, elements of ethnicity, memories, uh, myths and symbols and so on. So it's a blend of the two that comes together in the form of a nation with a dash of modernity thrown in. And so that really uh, is why there is tension to some degree between the ethnic and the civic side or the state side of the political and the cultural side of a nation. Because a nation is a kind of a, a blend. It's a tension between those two. And therefore, it's not uh, accidental that nations will tend to lean more, perhaps, in an ethnic direction or lean more in a civic direction. And of course, the civic, one could argue, is more inclusive of different ethnic groups uh, than the ethnic. Uh, but perhaps the ethnic might be more inclusive of different political philosophies. Uh, but in any case, this is a, an important issue for us today. So we talked last time about uh, ethnic nationalism. So we've talked about state nationalism, where states, to some extent from the top down, seek to nation build by having a conscript army, by having a national bureaucracy, national education system, teaching everybody the same national history, the same version of the language, all of those state-driven things, okay? Uh, <coughs> War memorials, Remembrance Day, all of these state traditions which are meant to inculcate a shared sense of state national identity. But then we talked about actually bottom, more bottom-up, instead of top-down, more bottom-up type uh, mechanisms of nation formation, which is ethnic nationalism, which is, let's say you don't have a state, uh, how are you going to form a nationalist movement? Well, it's maybe going to be some intellectuals forming an association who then start to try and raise consciousness in the population around language, ethnicity. So then you're going to have more of an ethnic national formation of a state, and particularly if you're breaking out of an empire like Austria-Hungary, or uh, the Russian Empire, then you're going to be mobilizing people on the basis of shared ethnicity. So that's a different route to uh, forming your nation that we talked about last time. And now 
we're bringing those together, um, the state nation from the top down, the ethnic nation, to some extent from the bottom up, uh, which is more important? Uh, and in all nations, are there these two forces that are working at all, at all times? You know, a bottom up and a top down type force. Uh, so we've talked, I'm not going to go through, we have a lot to get through, so I'm not going to recap this too much. We talked uh, several lectures ago about state nationalism and uh, the rise of mass society and the way states try and invent traditions and try and uh, uh, inculcate a common language and common understanding of history. Ethnic nationalism, last time we, we talked about this, which is more of an emphasis on uh, culture, particularly folk culture and vernacular, because often the nations that had to break out of empires didn't have states and high written languages, so they had to create these by saying, who are we? So let's go and look at what the peasants are, what their dialects are, what their traditions are, and let's try and synthesize out of that uh, something that can compete with these high languages like French or English. Uh, and so we're going to create this nation from on the basis of what uh, we see as the authentic folk traditions. And this type of nationalism, as we saw, arising as it did in the Romantic period, tends to take on a more exclusive, ethnically exclusive flavor because it's, to be a member, you've got to be a member of an ethnic group, initially anyway. Um, that's how you define an in-member in as opposed to an out-member. Uh, so if you're in Austria-Hungary and you're the Czech Republic, uh, or if you are, um, you know, Croatia, or, or, or if you're Serbia in the Ottoman Empire, how do you define who's an in-member? Well, it's going to be someone who's Orthodox, not someone who's Muslim, if you're talking Serb identity. Uh, so the definition of an in-group member is um, ethnic, at the beginning anyway. And so that's going to shape, perhaps, the character of the nation many decades or even centuries later. I mean, this is the argument that how your nation was formed uh, is going to be important decades or even centuries later. So if the nation was formed as a state nation, like France, uh, then maybe it's going to have a different, maybe more ethnically inclusive character than uh, a nation like Germany, which was formed on the basis of ethnic nationalism because Germany didn't have a state. It was just a collection of different political units. So maybe that's going to change the character of the nation uh, centuries later. So then can we, can we talk then about state versus ethnic nationalisms today? So nations that were formed in the state top-down process, a nation like France, nations that were formed from that ethnic process, such as Germany, uh, are they very different even today in the way they deal with ethnic diversity, let's say? Uh, and that is the argument of a number of writers, and was certainly the argument of uh, Hans Kuhn in the US, 1944, uh, who was an emigre from Europe, uh, and also before him, that of Friedrich Meinecke, whose book Cosmopolitanism, 1909, draws a difference between what he calls, a, and this is German uh, terminology, Staatsnation, uh, Kulturnation. The first being a state-formed nation, such as France, and the second, a culture-formed or ethnic-formed nation, such as Germany. Uh, the argument being they have a different character. Uh, and so actually what Kohn argues is that you have a, a Western experience and an Eastern experience, just sticking with Europe for the moment, although we can broaden that out uh, subsequently to talk about uh, Asia and then 
post-colonial societies are actually a quite tricky category. I'm happy to discuss how these terms fit on, on there. But the argument here for Cohn is that in the western part of Europe, uh, countries that are listed here, say Spain, England, France, Switzerland, uh, you already had uh, a state, perhaps an absolutist state or dynastic state, which then undergoes a liberal revolution to become a nation state. Uh, so it's an internal process. It's not about defining who are the people. It's just about introducing a new type of sovereignty. Instead of the king, it's the people. So that was the move uh, in the western part of Europe, for the most part, for Cohen. And then in the east, however, which were dominated by these large land empires, the Russian Empire, Austria-Hungary, and the Ottoman Empire, uh, you had a very different situation. Many of these peoples actually uh, had to break out of these empires or had to re uh, unite many different political units together, like Germany and Italy, in order to form a nation. And so they could only define themselves on the basis of culture. Clearly, if you don't have political institutions, you can't define your nation on the basis of politics and political institutions uh, because you don't have them. So you've got to look to something else. So maybe it's, hey, we all speak Serbian, uh, maybe, or Polish, or, or, you know, or maybe we're all Orthodox or Catholic. Uh, you know, this is sort of the basis for uniting people to form a national movement to break away. Uh, and so the ethnic experience in the east of Europe, uh, so Cohn draws this uh, distinction between um, Eastern and Western national identities and nationalisms. The Western nationalism uh, is seen as more being based in enlightenment principles, um, the social contract, more abstract ties between citizens and the state. In some ways, crudely put, a more kind of rational sense of attachment, more individualistic sense of attachment to the nation, more uh, about voluntarism and, and will rather than ascription uh, and the idea that you were born with certain characteristics and that is who you are and that's given, which is what ascribed means that these characteristics are given to you at birth. Whereas, so the, the Eastern form is more than, according to Cohn, about you, know, you are a member at birth because you have certain cultural characteristics and that's what makes you a national. Rogers Brubaker, in his book, Citizenship and Nationhood in France and Germany, written in 1992, argued that the processes that formed the French and German nations uh, continue to bear an imprint down to the present day, at least as of 1992. He was making the argument that France, because it had had a different type of nation formation, a Western type, based on the Enlightenment, based on internal reform from a monarchy to popular sovereignty, uh, had a concept of nationhood that is territorial. That is, everybody on the territory is French, as long as they subscribe to the values in the, uh, of the French Revolution and the Constitution. Um, and so that conception of nationhood is different from the German conception, which was based on culture and language. And Brubaker was arguing that if you looked at German citizenship laws in the 1990s, someone who was of German ethnic background, but from, let's say, the Volga region of Russia, uh, would have a right to German citizenship on the basis of ancestry. And so that is an ethnic definition of nationhood, shaped by the fact that Germany understood nationhood on the basis of shared ethnicity and culture, rather than on the basis of shared territory, which was the French model, the civic model. And that is just an example of where 
Brubaker is making this case for the um, continued relevance of this <coughs> distinction between ethnic and state nationhood, which manifests itself today uh, in national identities. The countries formed on the basis of state nationalism have a civic form of national identity, and uh, countries formed on the basis of ethnic nationalism have a uh, more ethnic form of national identity, and it has a whole, all kinds of implications then for who can be a member and who can't be a member. Uh, and so that tends its relevance, particularly in an age of immigration and immigrant diversity. Uh, but not only that, but largely that's where it becomes relevant. Okay, so um, just to cover a little bit, again, I'm going to go quite quickly through this because this is in the Cohn reading in particular. Uh, Cohn sketched this Western model uh, of which France was an exemplar, this idea that the national membership is on the basis of state and territory, uh, that they are uh, emerged through state national processes, so a secure state such as the French uh, state, which, which, which was already secure prior to the revolution. Uh, you have an internal uh, revolution. The national identity tends to be more forward-looking based on you know, what are we doing together. It might be fighting a war. It might be building an economy. Whatever it is, it's more of a project forward-looking. This is the, um, the kind of nation that you get. The emphasis then is on simply living in a territory and uh, membership is, is voluntary. So if you want to be French, if you want to subscribe to uh, the values of the, of the revolution, you can do so and be accepted as a member of the nation. Uh, in addition, there is this contractual inclusive element. So it's about I give tax and military service, I get certain rights. In exchange for certain duties, I have certain rights. And that more contractual, uh, individualistic element is stronger in Cohn's Western model uh, of the nation. And so that then suggests a more inclusive and post-ethnic, trans-ethnic, trans-religious. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or Catholic or whatever. You can still be French. Uh, and this was, this was the mantra of uh, the French revolutionaries who said, you know, as long as, you know, uh, if, they if, if a Jew wants to be a Jew, and if that's going to be his focus, we don't want that. But if, if they are happen to be a Jew and their focus is France, that's fine. They can be, still be a Jew. So it's, it's inclusive of uh, people on the basis of different ethnic origins. Um, and there's a link through in the Western model, too, to this idea of nation building by the state. So the state's really is the basis of the nation. Nation kind of follows from state. Uh, now, the Eastern model for Cohn is different. The, again, it's the emphasis on culture, shared culture and shared ancestry is what makes you a member of the nation, not just happening to, to reside on the territory of a particular state. Because don't forget, a lot of these countries didn't have their own state. So the only way they could tell who was in or who was out was on the basis of culture and ancestry. So you could be. Uh, you know, you could be German and living in the Baltic, uh, but you wouldn't be counted as a member of the Estonian and Lithuanian uh, nation just because you were living there. It's not about territory. Or you could be German, a German speaker in Hungary or in uh, the Czech lands. That doesn't make you a Hungarian or a Czech. Uh, you might, in fact, be loyal more to the empire because you speak German. So actually, membership criteria is based on culture and ethnicity. E the Eastern nation emerges more. 
is more spearheaded by inter romantic intellectuals who are often insecure in their position in the social structure. That's an argument that Leah Greenfeld goes into in greater detail, uh, whereas the Western nations are driven more by state functionaries, uh, what, what are known as the intelligentsia. So that's another important difference that uh, Cohn and others point to, that the Eastern type of nation is more something that's imagined by romantic intellectuals who form societies who then form um, national movements. So that is more uh, looking to spiritual authenticity. Folk culture tends to be more backward looking, or at least looking to the past, glorifying a heroic past rather than future state projects that, are, that, that are people are involved in. So perhaps more looking to the past than looking to the future, interested more in culture, spiritual authenticity. Uh, the ties between individuals and the nation are conceived as uh, given by birth, spiritual, emotional, not contractual, rational, as, as is in the Western model. Uh, and so you'll often get metaphors of motherland, family, kinship used when thinking or talking about the nation uh, as, a, as a family, not as um, a social contract. And as a result of the ethnic and cultural criteria used to determine an insider and an outsider, uh, the Eastern model of nationhood is less inclusive of ethnic diversity. Uh, now, that's not to say that these types of nations may not develop a state with its inst you know, institutions, such as a postal service and an army and, and a national economy and media, but, it doesn't, but those will always be secondary to some degree to the uh, core definitions which are based on language, culture, ancestry. Uh, now, moving forward from Cohn, who wrote, don't forget, in 1944 during World War II, um, we then come to Anthony Smith, who talks about the relevance then of, of ethnic and civic, even now, this idea that uh, you know, there are ethnic nations which are more <coughs> ethnic and those which are more civic. So for Smith, he sees it more as a continuum that it's not that you're in one box labeled ethnic if you broke away from an empire and one box labeled civic if you were a state nation, but actually all nations blend elements of the two and it's just a question of where you are in the continuum, more towards the ethnic pole or more towards the civic pole. Uh, okay. And linked, of course, to this is, you know, for Cohn, he definitely saw the Western type as more the virtuous and good type of nation and the Eastern as the, the more negative type of nation because it was less inclusive. Uh, and we'll see then that that association of ethnic as sort of bad and civic as good is something that's come to be heavily criticized. And in fact, the whole uh, ethnic-civic typology, uh, this idea that we can break nations into uh, two types, has also be, been criticized quite extensively. One of, the, uh, one of the first criticisms is that, well, can we really speak of two boxes, the ethnic box and the civic box? Or are there maybe three, four, five different categories that, that really are meaningful? So is it possible to really uh, break nations down into these, just these two categories? Uh, does it really stand up to scrutiny? And, and also, can we really talk about civic nationalisms and nations as good and ethnic as bad? Um, so the first thing we might do is look to a whole series of exceptions. And I'm just going to jump ahead here to this slide. Uh, and don't worry, I will go back. But if we follow Hans Kohn, um, Kohn's argument would be 
more or less that uh, there's a whole set of different alignments here. Um, so you have uh, ethnic nationalism, which tends to be illiberal and tends to be autocratic rather than democratic, is associated with a non-state, uh, a breakaway from an existing state, more Eastern geographically, emphasis more on culture than politics, uh, more ethnic in its or orientation, and sort of agrarian or pre-industrial. Now that's a lot of different criteria that all have to line up together. So a country has to tick all those boxes to fall into the ethnic category. And the Western has to tick all the opposite boxes. That is, it has to be liberal, democratic, state-based, Western in geographic location, and so on. And what you actually find is when you start looking at individual cases, they don't neatly tick all of these criteria. Uh, so for example, Ireland, uh, in some ways, it is an ethnic nation in the sense that it broke away from Britain. So it was a non-state, uh, had a non-state ethnic type of origin. Uh, but on the other hand, it's a democracy rather than an autocracy. And it's certainly not located in the east. It's western in its geographic location. So there you see a, a case of a country that confounds an easy you know, ethnic civic dichotomy. It doesn't fit well into either box. Japan, you might say, oh, yeah, ethnic nation. Clearly, uh, definition of a member, you know, you can't be Japanese if you uh, are ethnically Korean. But uh, on the other hand, Japan also is a liberal democracy. So despite that sort of more ethnic tint, and it also had a secure state prior to being formed as a nation. So again, Japan doesn't fit the story so easily either. Uh, and there are a number of other cases that we could look to. The Swiss, for example, on, on, you'd say absolutely clearly a Western type of nation, democratic and inclusive <coughs> of different languages. Uh, but then on the other hand, if you look at Swiss national identity, there's a lot of focus on the past uh, of resistance to the Habsburg Empire uh, going back to the old Swiss Confederation in the 13th century. So clearly not just about forward-looking uh, current institutions. That's not really what Swiss national identity is about. And, so, and as you go through these cases, you realize it's very difficult to pigeonhole every country so easily. Post-colonial nationalisms are also difficult. On the one hand, you might say, well, most countries that became independent from uh, Western empires, we would call them civic nations because they inherited the colonial state, colonial boundaries, so they could only be based on state uh, nationalism. Uh, but that doesn't mean that uh, ethnic nationalism isn't present. Uh, if you look at the conflict in Sri Lanka, for example, it's very clearly the case that the Sinhalese uh, believe that Sri Lanka is an ethnic nation based on the Sinhalese. Uh, and so that's just one example, and there are a number of others of where ethnicity has reasserted itself uh, in a number of post-colonial societies. Uh, so clearly, you can't just automatically say post-colonial nationalism is civic. Uh, it's just not the case. And even in these core civic nations like France and the United States, they go through different periods and diff different uh, eras. And so there are times in France when, uh, around the time of the Dreyfus Affair in 1899, very strong anti-Semitism. There have been periods of very strong anti-immigrant sentiment. Uh, United States, similarly, uh, around the turn of the 20th century, 
uh, a very strong anti-Catholicism and, and anti-Semitism, very much around the idea that the U.S. is a white Protestant society, not just this open civic nation. So even in the so-called civic nations, we find plenty of exclusive uh, moments in the history. And so can we easily talk then about one box versus another? Um, maybe not. And then finally, a case like Germany, which is a paradigm case for Cohn, and it's important for Brubaker as well, who they say, well, German nationhood marked by its birth, uh, where it reunified on the basis of shared language and ethnicity. So it's an ethnic nation, always going to be exclusive. But then, post-1999, Germany liberalized its citizenship laws. And you can make an argument that became much more inclusive of immigrant groups such as the Turks. Uh, who had had problems getting citizenship, but maybe Germany's definition is shifting from ethnic to civic. Uh, so then what? Uh, does that then, how does that leave this typology? So we want to ask, is it the case that nations are ethnic or civic? Um, I've already talked about Switzerland. This is just to say that um, Switzerland is not, you know, has a emphasis on the landscape and its history, which is you could argue is backward looking. It doesn't fit neatly that civic typology. So uh, is it the case that these exceptions pour cold water on that neat division into ethnic and civic nations? Uh, maybe, maybe the whole idea of Western as a, a concept of Western or civic is, is a bit of a utopia. It doesn't really exist. Uh, so maybe we have to unpack that. OK. Um, now, there are two major, yeah. I mean, I think you put your finger on, on the distinction Cohn would make. So he'd say the, the first is the thing you mentioned was more an ethnic nation or Eastern. And the second, which is more about obeying the law and, and attachment, loyalty to the state, and so on, is more of the Western civic type of nation. Because when you mention Ireland, because for me, Ireland is more towards Republican more. Well, Republican, think of Republican as Western. Right. It's a form of Western uh, or civic nation. Okay, so um, obviously there are a lot of terms in here, but okay. So in terms of the criticism then of this typology, one is one set of criticisms revolves around this notion that, uh, that just two boxes alone doesn't do it justice. That actually we want to think about uh, we want to think about four or five different boxes or different differently named boxes. So the conceptual problem there's a conceptual problem. Uh, so Max Weber uses this notion of ideal type. He says what Max Weber, the sociologist, uh, famous German sociologist, argues is that when we develop concepts, we want to develop, say, exaggerated concepts uh, where no country really fits the ideal type of an, a purely ethnic nation that, that ticks all those boxes. But it's important that we have that out there as a, a way of orienting our, ourselves conceptually. Um, but one of the criticisms here is that even as, a, as an unrealistic exaggeration, uh, the ethnic nation doesn't really work. We really need more concepts than that. Uh, the second criticism, the second family of criticisms is around this idea of which I call real type, and that is that uh, countries on the ground don't fit 
the categories very well. So the reality of the way people think about their nations, the reality of, of nations that exist in the real world don't conform to uh, the ethnic and civic typology. And all, all countries are, in fact, both. I mean, that would be a kind of criticism um, based on the real type. So I just want to start with the first type of criticism, which is the criticism of the conceptual uh, the concept of ethnic civic, to, as the dichotomy as even in conceptual terms, forgetting about the real world, just dealing in the abstract world, even uh, the ethnic civic is a problem. So people like uh, Kimlicka, Nyguth, and Nielsen all say we actually need a third form rather than just ethnic and civic. We have to talk about cultural nations where it's not about ancestry and about blood, but it's also not about state and law and constitution and social contract. It's about a form of culture as the bonding agent for the nation. So Quebec, if you think about Quebec nationalism, it's all about the French language. It's not really about the institutions of Quebec or Hydro-Quebec or the Quebec Health Service. So it's not a purely civic thing or the Quebec Constitution and loyalty to the Constitution. It's not really that. But it's also not exclusive in the sense that they base their nation on the fact you've got to be descended from one of the 10,000 French settlers in the 1600s who formed the Quebec ethnic, uh, the French Canadian ethnic group. It's not that either. It's not ethnic. It's not purely civic. It's something that's not in between either. It's something wholly of a different order, cultural. Uh, you could even say Iran today as a cultural nationalism. You don't have to be Persian ethnically Persian. So it's not ethnic nationalism. It's not about uh, the state and loyalty to a, a set of abstract constitutional ideals, but it is Shia Islam as the uh, cultural agent, bonding agent, as the main symbol for this type of a nation. So can we talk about uh, cultural nations? And then you have some people who say, well, there's a, there's a fourth category, multicultural nation, which is not, which is different, because you mentioned Republican. So it's like saying, well, civic nation, uh, there's two types. There's the Republican type, where people have to assimilate, and then there's the multicultural type. So is that not just another type? Uh, so that's another form of criticism. And then a number of other authors, including I, I put myself on there, by the way. Did anyone notice that? <laughs> <laughs> but but this, uh, there's an argument that countries shift. You, know, you can have a country that moves around, that starts off civic. Like maybe Mexico started off civic because it broke away from, from Spain. And then um, in, during the Mexican Revolution, it moved in the direction of a more ethnic definition of who is a Mexican based on this idea of mestizo or cosmic race, which is this idea of a mix of uh, the Aztec and the Spanish uh, to form a new type of person. So that was more of an ethnic type of nationalism. So, Or you can, you can start off as a more ethnic nationalism we saw Germany, you know, maybe Germany was more ethnic in its definition, has shifted more in the direction of, of a civic nation. So that's, once you start to talk about shifting around between these categories, it's no longer possible to typecast a nation as one or the other. Mm -hmm. uh, then we come on to Oliver Zimmer's work, which is, uh, gets into detail. I'll come to that in a minute. It's a more complicated argument. So what does Zimmer say? Uh, he says, well, Actually, we can't speak of any one symbol type, like ancestry 
or language or geography or institutions as being automatically ethnic or civic. So we can't say, oh, a country that really defines itself on the basis of language uh, is automatically an ethnic nation. And a country that defines itself on the basis of political institutions is automatically uh, a civic nation. And you have to look at how these symbols are being used. So we could say, I mean, I could say, well, um, you know, England is a civic nation. You know, if you interpret uh, England as a mongrel nation formed of many different waves of invaders and immigrants, you know, you're, you're still talking about ancestry, but you're talking about it in a very inclusive way. Or if you talk about England as descendants of the Anglo-Saxons, then you're talking about England in a more, uh, you're talking about ancestry in a more exclusive way. It's the same set of symbols, ancestry, but it's being interpreted in different ways. One way you interpret it is exclusive, and another way is inclusive. And Zimmer says you can do this to any number of these uh, symbols. You could interpret, for example, language in an inclusive way or an exclusive way. In, in between the wars in Eastern Europe, it was used very much uh, in an exclusive way. That is, to really be a Pole, you have to uh, not only speak Polish, but only ethnic Poles can really speak it and really understand it. Uh, and so it's, it's connecting language very much as, you know, this is the outgrowth of the genius of the Polish people. Uh, and you, you have to be an insider to really understand it. So that's not something you can assimilate to. On the other, so that's an exclusive way of thinking about language, whereas in maybe Quebec or Catalonia today, uh, language is used in an inclusive way. Anyone who speaks Catalan is a Catalan, essentially. So you can learn it, you can join it. And, and, that, and that brings in a sort of voluntary, inclusive element. So for what Zimmer's saying is, you can take any symbol and interpret it in an exclusive or an inclusive way. Uh, and he, what the, the terminology he uses here is uh, resources, which is symbols, symbolic resources, and mechanism, which is whether you're looking at things in an exclusive or an inclusive way. And the same with landscape. Is the landscape a timeless thing that has been there for millennia, goes into the mists of time, and has shaped the Swiss or the English or the Chinese people, whatever. Uh, that's more interpreting land in an exclusive way. Or is it just something that is anyone who lives on this territory who's attached to it is French? That's more of an inclusive uh, <coughs> interpretation. OK, so I've just kind of walked you through some of the critiques of the concept uh, of the ethnic and civic. The idea of using these concepts of ethnic nation, civic nation. Some say, actually, we've got to say, no, uh, let's talk about mechanisms and resources and how they're applied to many different symbols. Or let's talk about ethnic, civic, cultural. Or let's talk about ethnic, civic, cultural, multicultural. So that's conceptual <coughs> criticisms, uh, criticisms. But then there are also those who say, um, Actually, the problem is not the concepts. The problem is when we try and apply them to the way people really think today in many different countries, uh, we don't find what we expect. That is, using large-scale social surveys where we ask people, uh, what is important to be, in, in your view, what, what are the important criteria for being a Hungarian or a, uh, a Japanese? You know, birth in the territory having the religion 
you know, being, being uh, Christian, uh, the history of the country, the language of the country, obeying the law, you know. So there's a whole series of questions that all people are asked. And you might expect somebody who has an ethnic view of the nation to say, well, to be British, you have to be of English ancestry, Christian, uh, you have to, the history is most important. Constitution doesn't matter as much, obeying the law, attachment to the state doesn't matter as much, and so on. So you might expect the answers to break down along those lines. So there'd be a, a correlation between your answer on the ancestry, history, language question, and that would be uh, not correlated with uh, the ancestor, uh, the uh, question on <coughs> constitution and loyalty to the state and tax and all these sorts of things. Um, and you'd expect that the more ethnic kind of answers would be given in uh, countries in Eastern Europe, maybe, where that were formed on the basis of breakaways from a state, on the basis of shared ethnicity. And in the Western countries, you'd expect more of the civic answers. Well, in testing this out on survey data, uh, quite a number of authors have found no, not, they have not found the expected relationship. Uh, and so for Jones and Smith, uh, in their article, they find, looking at the survey data, uh, the ascriptive elements, like having to be born to a parent who was already British, let's say, or you know, that's important, or having to have the religion or the, uh, of the country or the history and so on, these cultural things, they're very important even in the Western nations. Uh, so regardless of East-West, uh, it seems that that's an important criteria of identity. Yeah, Can it be the case of like England, Wales, Scotland, and Ireland, because they all under one ruler under the Fornax system? Can it be more for imperial mode for them? Because uh, they all under the one ruler system, like the monarch system, you've got England, Wales, Scotland, mm -hmm. uh, and Ireland. Yes, sure. Yeah, well, you might expect, for example, that the Welsh and the... Uh, the Scots and other groups, you know, you might expect them to have a more ethnic type of nationhood in, in the sense they don't have their own state. Uh, but anyhow, well, I'll return to, to Britain in a second, but here, I mean, the argument for Hume and, and for Jones and Smith as well is they didn't find this big divide between East and West, ethnic and civic. They don't see the survey data. And likewise for Schulman and John Mudd as well, uh, there are as many, they say, as many uh, of these indicators contest as support this ethnic East ethnic, West civic divide. So people are not answering the questions as uh, the theory would have you believe. Uh, and likewise, and then when we get to John Mott's article, uh, he says, well, actually, there are not two boxes, ethnic, civic, but actually we can talk about five clusters of attitudes. And so people who answer um, this question this way tend to answer this question this way. So there's a cluster. Uh, but the clusters are not as you'd expect. They don't fall neatly into the ethnic and civic, but actually along five, there are five clusters that fall out of the data that they analyze. Um, for John Mann, he does find the ethnic dimension somewhat stronger in the Eastern Europe than in Western Europe, so that's maybe in line with Brubaker and Cohn, but it's not a huge effect. Uh, the ethnic dimension is also important in the West, and that kind of aligns with some of the studies I just talked about. Uh, clearly, it's the case then that in Western nations too, uh, what we might think of as ethnic and cultural criteria are seen as important aspects. And, and I don't know, some of you may have caught this survey sometime, not that long ago, several months ago, that um, found that even in Britain, almost half the population said that having British ancestry was an important component of being British. So it's not to say it's the most important component, but it does suggest that there are 
even in Western nations, ethnic components. Um, so it doesn't seem like there's a clear distinction between uh, ethnic and civic nations uh, in Europe from this survey data. Also, uh, Hiram and Jagnat, in testing their European data, do not see any clear link, even those people who seem to give quite uh, ethnic national answers. So the criteria of membership in this nation is you have to uh, have, you know, have been born to a parent from here, you have to believe in the Christianity, let's say, you have to have, uh, you know, it's the history that really makes us who we are. These sorts of more ethnic answers, that's not, doesn't seem to be correlated with xenophobia, uh, hostility to minorities and immigrants. So you, you get a disconnect. Again, we would expect uh, those who express more uh, of an ethnic uh, criteria in terms of that that's what's important for being truly Dutch or truly British, those people to be more anti-immigrant or anti-minority. But you don't see that in the data, which was, again, just shows that sometimes these automatic assumptions don't necessarily turn out in uh, the data. Uh, and, and actually, one thing that a lot of these studies find is you know, the ethnic criteria matter, and, but that even in the ethnic nations, people have you know, pride in the state and its achievements. So they do have pride in civic elements as well. So the, there doesn't seem to be a trade-off between you're either an ethnic nationalist or a civic nationalist. It seems like you can actually be both. And then often people are quite strongly proud of history and ancestry and strongly proud of their health service and the Constitution. And so it seems like the big distinction is more between people who are just nationalist full stop and people who are not nationalistic full stop. I mean, that seems to be one way the data breaks down. Uh, Macron did a study as well on England and Scotland. Um, and found three types. He did identify a civic and an ethnic, but also a third type, which didn't fall neatly within either of those two categories. So just what are the conclusions from a lot of this survey research on people's attitudes to defining the nation? Well, the, long, the short, quick take home is they don't find evidence for a neat east-west ethnic civic distinction in terms of people's attitudes to what is important for being a member of our nation. Uh, and also, this doesn't seem linked to attitudes to immigration and to xenophobia. Uh, so it, it just shows that there's really a lot of messiness and a lot of complexity when it gets to actual, actual people's views on their national identity. Uh, and that there's no contradiction automatically between being uh, strongly ethnic nationalist and strongly civic nationalist. So that's interesting in terms of, of the data. So that then brings us back to this <coughs> This debate, how useful, um, and does the ethnic uh, and civic distinction have any use? Now, it is important because we're having a debate, particularly in Western societies, about, uh, you know, let's say Britishness in this country. You know, how, what does it mean to be British? Um, the state is saying all you have to be is loyal to the state. Uh, ethnic criteria shouldn't come into it at all. So they're trying to push towards a civic definition of the nation in many Western countries. Um, this is, of course, challenged, perhaps, by populist right movements, which, which, such as UKIP, which may take a more, even not officially, but maybe the support base might take a more, what seems to be a more exclusive definition of who's a member, who isn't a member. So it is very relevant uh, to a lot of the debates that are being had, particularly in the West, but not only in the West, actually. I mean, in sub-Saharan Africa, places like Ivory Coast, 
issues of who is truly an Ivoirian. Do you have to be Christian? Uh, can a Muslim be a, 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 an Ivoirian along at parity with a Christian? I mean, these are debates that are not, not just in the West, uh, but cover, cover many nations around this issue of minorities and how do they fit into the nation. Because it's going to be difficult if the nation is defined in ethnic terms. Uh, a Tamil in Sri Lanka is never going to be Sinhalese, so how are they going to be a member of the nation? Or a Palestinian in Israel is never going to be Jewish. How are they going to be uh, a member of the nation? So these questions of membership are thrown up by uh, issues of immigration and also issues of just even long-standing minorities. Uh, so we get gets back to this question, how useful then is uh, dividing nations into the civic or ethnic? Now, uh, Anthony Smith's argument is that, and, and Aviel Rochwald as well, they say, okay, yes, these are not perfect, and we know that many countries uh, have aspects of both. Uh, and maybe you could be a strong ethnic and a strong civic nationalist, but still, uh, these are useful shorthands. It's not to say they're, you know, you, you, you can break countries down initially into these two boxes, but then you have to start unpicking them and get into the complexity that lies underneath. Uh, Smith would say all nations have ethnic and civic aspects. It's just where they are on that continuum, more towards the ideal type of the ethnic nation or more towards the ideal type of the civic. Uh, and it's a useful starting point. Um, and that all nations display both ethnic and civic elements. Uh, for Smith, he says, well, it's a mistake to think of even the French state as being a purely civic nation. And then if you look at French history, there were many periods in French history where they looked to the pre-French revolutionary, pre-modern, and you know, arguably more cultural and ethnic past. Catholicism, the Gothicist uh, movement in 19th century France. Um, in England, you can talk about folk revivals, folk cultural revivals, uh, the vogue for medievalism uh, in the 19th century. So many episodes in these nations past which are not neatly categorized as civic. Um, and so it just depends. And, and any different mo at any given moment, a nation might lean in a more ethnic direction, or maybe it might be focused on its institutions that it's trying to build up, its economy, its military, uh, health service, whatever. And that might be the focus of its national identity, the Olympics. Again, something civic. Well, OK. Uh, so for Smith, then, nations need two kinds of legitimacy. On the one hand, political legitimacy, this idea of the people being sovereign, uh, having a sovereign state. But at the same time, a cultural and historical legitimacy as well. So nations, even if they're formed in a very statist way, like many Latin American countries, later on they seek to sort of build themselves an older past than they might have. Maybe, as in the case of Mexico, saying, well, actually, we go back to the Aztecs. So we can track a much older history that might just be evident from this idea of the formation of Mexico in whenever it was, 1810, or whenever this, the Mexican state emerged uh, as, as a modern nation. Um, and meanwhile, nations which have a very ethnic basis, for, for Smith's terms, will seek to develop uh, a constitution and all of the uh, paraphernalia of state, a military, and economy. And so they'll build up an accretion of civic elements, which they can also form the basis of pride in the country. Uh, John Hutchinson takes this argument a bit further and says, instead of thinking of just ethnic civic, why don't we think of 
different layers. So maybe a country like France has its pre-French revolutionary past, which is more about Catholicism, perhaps, uh, and uh, it's more about medieval myths, Joan of Arc, whatever. And that, or you could even take that back to the Gauls and the Franks. Um, and so that is a more of an ethnic past. And actually, that layer, those layers are there, and different social actors can appeal to them. So depending on what your purpose is, you may wish to invoke the, Gaul, the past of the Gauls in France, which French liberals did in the 19th century. Uh, or you may just wish to look at the French Revolution. Uh, so there are many usable pasts which um, intellectuals and different politicians can draw upon. Some of them will give it a more civic tint, a more ethnic tint. We can even look at countries today like Russia, which is you know, arguably Russia at the, at the time of Catherine the Great or thereafter. It was Western facing, was trying to emphasize the Enlightenment. Uh, but now, perhaps under Putin, you can see an, a, an emphasis on the non-Western, things which make us different from the West, orthodoxy, um, that we are a, a country that was formed from the East uh, by steppe peoples. And so maybe all of those things which um, you know, Russia is trying to emphasize now are its Eastern, non-Western type heritage. So you, could, you can get a switching back and forth. And maybe when Russia is more in its Western mode, it's more in a civic frame of mind, emphasizing constitution, uh, rights of man, etc. Maybe when it's in a more Eastern fr uh, frame of mind, it's more moving in the direction of ethnic uh, nationalism. So you can't speak of Russia as just an ethnic nation or just a civic nation. Uh, OK. And, and likewise, with even a country like Britain has many different layers and levels. Uh, you, know, you can clearly talk about uh, civic things, such as the Industrial Revolution, uh, but equally, um, you know, you can, the, you know, the Anglo-Saxon past is still there. You could still tap that. Uh, and so there are other different resources that you could play with. So it's a matter of, again, it gets a bit towards Zimmer's point that it depends what you want to do with the different layers of your past and different symbols that you have. Which do you want to invoke? Which do you want to play upon uh, in your national identity at a given time? And there won't be one single national identity. They'll be competing. For, for Hutchinson, you know, you might have the left pushing a certain version of national identity, and the right, and then religious figures pushing a different version of national identity, emphasizing different things. You know, in Greece, you know, the, the uh, secular liberal intellectuals really stressed ancient Greece, the ancient <laughs> Greek past, that's who we are, uh, whereas the religious orthodox authorities would talk about the Byzantium and the Byzantine past, and that's really what Greece is all about. So it just depends where you're coming at the national identity from. Are you looking at it from a city or from the countryside uh, as a religious person on the left, on the right? Depending on where you're coming from, you're going to imagine the nation in a different way. Uh, this question then of good and bad nationalisms, which David Brown takes on. When Brown makes the argument, look, it's not the case that uh, ethnic nationalisms are automatically more negative than civic. And he compares Indonesia, which by definition has a more civic type of na nationalism, because Indonesia was formed, it was the Dutch East Indies, which was uh, taken over by uh, the Indonesians. And so the definition of the nation was just as a state with many different groups inside. Uh, and then Malaysia, which had a more ethnic definition because it was the Malays who were the dominant ethnic group, 
to define the nation. But uh, for Brown, actually, Malaysia, with its ethnic definition of the nation, was actually more tolerant towards minorities. It accepted their presence much more, whereas Indonesia was trying to get everybody to be the same, uh, to, to be loyal to this civic Indonesian uh, construct. And those who were still talking about ethnicity were deemed as disloyal and something, therefore, to be attacked. Uh, and, and, and so they were, in fact, there was more bloodshed and more intolerance. And, and we can also talk about, say, the USSR, Cambodia, Eritrea, socialist nations on the face of it, very civic because they were based around socialism and the state, but actually very intolerant of any expressions of ethnicity. Uh, and so that easy equation that Cohn made between uh, Western civic equals good, Eastern ethnic equals bad, breaks down, again, upon closer scrutiny. Um, we can talk about, essentially, some ethnic nationalisms. I mean, Quebec, Welsh, and, and, and Breton nationalism began in an ethnic way, but has become more inclusive in many ways. Um, OK, so then drawing on this, the argument is that uh, all, nationalisms, all nationalisms have both uh, ethnic and civic elements. It's just a question of the balance of the two. Uh, and we must sort of deal with both if we want to talk about nationalism. Um, and this sort of brings us then to uh, these debates that are going on now around integration. Uh, what does it mean to be British, for example? What does it mean to be American? Uh, these debates are going on, by the way, in most Western countries because of the challenge posed by both immigration and separatism uh, are challenges. Um, you know, if you if you're Indonesia and you're facing separatism, or if you are Britain and you're facing <coughs> Scottish separatism, you have to come up with a definition of the nation that is inclusive. And that's going to push you in the direction of a civic definition of the nation, British values, the NHS, or you know, the monarchy, perhaps. Uh, you know, so that pressure, then, to have a more inclusive and civic nation, uh, you might think of that as being related to the growing diversity in the country. But then, on the other hand, there's going to be pushback on that from those who say, well, actually, we think of you know, being French doesn't, you know, being French is, is tied to being Christian or Catholic, or at the very least being secular. And so there's a problem if people want to be strong Muslims and, and French. That is a problem. And so you know, then, then you have this whole debate over uh, what defines Frenchness. Uh, is it just about the Constitution? Uh, is it just about living in France and, and paying your tax? Um, that, pure, that purely Western civic definition. Well, clearly not. I mean, as the rise of Front National shows, it's, there's clearly other more ethnic elements that are playing a role. Yeah? I was just wondering, you just mentioned French. I could be an ethnic institution. 